Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, March 4th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta and Jenny Mantis podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? So it's Monday, but it's not a water cooler today. We have to push that till tomorrow because of scheduling conflicts. And Jacob, you are not... Uh, where you normally are. You're not recording where you normally record with the same mic. Is that correct? Uh, correct. I normally have a nice mic, which makes you sound like a professional. I am currently uh, house-sitting for my mother while she is out of her home watching Seven Dogs. So in order to get a decent sound and to get away from the dog noises, I'm I'm in her cl- in her bedroom closet with all the doors shut. So hello from the closet. So two out of the three of us are recording from a closet. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, we'll 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 deal with the uh, not as uh, you know the sound is not as great as it usually is, but I think uh, we can hear you fine. So I think people will still uh, enjoy this. Okay. Let's um let's dive into the news. Let's start off with Metal Gear Solid. This is the movie that Jordan Voight Roberts has been trying to make for a couple years now, and uh, over the weekend, kind of like this uh, this whole campaign spawned up to cast Oscar Isaacs in this in, in, in this movie. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so the Metal Gear Solid movie has been in development since, I think, around 2014. It technically doesn't have a green light yet, but uh, now Oscar Isaac, who, of course, is in Star Wars and Inside Lewin Davis and a bunch of other things, uh, says that he wants to star in the movie during a an interview with IGN, he said, Metal Gear Solid, that's the one. I'm throwing my hat in for that one. And uh, Jordan uh, Vogt Roberts, the director who's been attached to that movie for a long time, uh, responded to that on Twitter saying, to everyone asking how I feel about Oscar Isaac saying he wants to be Solid Snake, the full process required to cast an icon hasn't even started. But ask Boss Logic where the idea for his brilliant mock-up came from. The ball is in Oscar's court. Uh, He's referring to an image that he shared on Twitter. Boss Boss Logic is a guy who uh, puts up, he creates like digital art of uh, basically any sort of fan casting that happens to be going around the internet. And one of the images he created last year was of Oscar Isaac in 
the role of Solid Snake for a, a potential Metal Gear movie. And it seems like the director of this potential movie <laughs> asked specifically asked him to to create this mock-up. So um, it, it certainly seems like this could be, you know, this is not an official casting announcement, but if both parties are interested and maybe the stars align, uh, we could end up seeing Oscar Isaac as Solid Snake in a Metal Gear movie. Now, Jacob, I know you are a fan of this video game series. Well, what do you what do you think of the possibility of Oscar Isaac being uh, the, the lead character in this? I think they definitely need a big name. I mean, uh, Solid Snake's voice was actually recast with Kiefer Sutherland in the most recent game, actually much to my chagrin, but that's another story. So I know that uh, Hideo Kojima, who created the game series, definitely likes American movie stars. He likes the idea of a marquee name being Solid Snake. So I think this is the kind of thing that would definitely make him happy. I'm not so sure I see it quite yet because there's a gentleness to Oscar Isaac that even seeps into like, you know, his action roles that is like lacking from Solid Snake. Solid Snake is very much inspired by Kurt Russell and tough guys from the 80s. And I don't see Solid Snake having that having that Oscar Isaac vibe. I think he's a little too charming, a little bit too sweet. But I'm I love Oscar Isaac. I'm willing to be shown that I'm wrong. Uh, I just if if he wants to, you know, break free of the, you know, Poe Dameron, charming space Fonzie look, you know, playing a really tough-talking uh, philosophical soldier uh, with, like, tons of blood on his hands may be the way to go. I mean, I, I've never played Metal Gear Solid, but just, you know, having watched friends play it and stuff, he doesn't seem, like, as gruff as what they need for that role. Yeah. I, David Hayter, the screenwriter who actually was also a voice actor who voiced uh, Solid Snake in the first four games has a very, very distinctive voice that um, Kiefer Sutherland couldn't quite match. I think a lot of people have David Hayter's voice in their brain, like, wired to the character. So whoever they cast has to live up to that voice, and I don't hear it in Oscar Isaac quite yet, but, you know, he's an actor. We'll see what happens if this happens. Uh, this hey, is... a, a quick counterpoint to this, Jacob, is uh, Oscar Isaac's performance in Annihilation. He plays sort of a, a stoic, uh, tough soldier in that movie uh and there's there's very little of his uh normal charm on display in that role so maybe that's like a little closer to what this could be that's that's a good point i just i, just, I need to see him have a 20 minute monologue about nuclear weapons <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> philosophy and uh and then then we'll talk he needs to see yeah. all the ghosts he's be able to have, talk about nuclear weapons and philosophy to a ghost for 20 minutes that's middle gear <laughs> Little does Jacob know that is the the screen test that Oscar Isaac actually uh, Oscar Isaac actually has to go through to to get this role as a twenty minute monologue about nuclear fallout or whatever you just said. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to our, our next story, and uh, this is actually kind of surprising because Edge of Tomorrow is one of those movies that I think we all loved and was kind of critically acclaimed, but didn't you know. Uh, do that well at the box office, maybe because, uh, I don't know, the marketing for the movie was not that great. But it seems like a sequel is actually in development, and Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt could both return. What do we know, Jacob? Well, the interesting with the story is that we've been hearing rumbles about Edge of Tomorrow 2 for a few years now. Like, I feel like almost immediately after people started realizing the first movie was good, even though it didn't do well. And now Hollywood Reporter uh, says that Warner Brothers is officially saying, yeah, let's go for it. And they've hired uh, screenwriter Matthew Robinson to write the screenplay. Matthew Robinson uh, wrote The Invention of Lying and Monster Trucks, which isn't the most impressive resume. But we all know how screenwriters have their work changed in the process. So I'm not going to be down on, on Mr. Robinson quite yet. 
But they do report that if Cruz, Blunt, and director Doug Lyman like the script, they're going to move forward with this, which I think is really interesting because, as you said, Peter, the first one, it did okay. I don't think it – and I think when you take international money into account, I think it may have broken even. But it was a movie that people did not find and love until home video, until a, until the title was essentially changed to Live, Die, Repeat, which is a much better title. Uh, and people started saying, hey, that, that Tom Cruise movie is actually pretty good. And the people <laughs> – after the fact, became big fans of this. So but, by the way, if if they make a sequel, is it going to be called Edge of Tomorrow Two, or is it going to be called Live Die Repeat Two? It has to be Edge of Tomorrow Two, right? I mean, I personally am not a big fan of the rebranding. I feel like Edge of Tomorrow Edge of Tomorrow is a bad title, but I feel like you're stuck with it. I feel like I feel like once that's on the poster in in, in the theaters, you're stuck with it. However, if they want to call the sequel Live Die Repeat, <laughs> so it's Edge of Tomorrow and then Live Die Repeat, which could be even more confusing, I'll be okay with that. And also, what would the story be? Because, you know, spoiler alert for Edge of Tomorrow, but in the end of the day, the hero wins, and I guess is starting the day over again? That's a good question. I know that uh, in the past, Christopher McQuarrie, uh, the director of the past Mission Impossibles, Tom Cruise's frequent collaborator, who did a he did the final version of the script for Edge of Tomorrow, he uh, spoke about how the a couple years ago about how the sequel would allow the ending of the first movie to make sense. He wouldn't elaborate, but make of that what you will. I don't know what that means either. But I know that also Doug Lyman has said in the past that the sequel would go in some really crazy directions and, and up the ante for all the time jumping and time repeating. I don't know what that means. I mean, I'm imagining, uh, like, for example, I, we just saw Happy Death Day to You, which essentially pulled it back to the future part two and had characters... Uh, dying and repeating through the first movie, overlapping events of the first film. Uh, so it was, it was a very, very ambitious way to take a small horror franchise. So I'm curious to see if maybe we see something similar with this. But Ben, what do you think? Is there is there room for a sequel here? I think the first one's perfect. I have no need for <sighs> yeah, a sequel. I know, that's the thing, is I love that first movie so much that I'm automatically a little hesitant about a sequel, just because I, I feel like capturing that lightning in a bottle is going to be really tough. Um, to me, it's just a, a countdown at this point until McQuarrie comes back on to write the script, because it seems like Tom Cruise doesn't make a movie without him these days, and and it seemed like McQuarrie had so much ownership over that first movie. Uh, I know Doug Lyman directed it, but um, it, it just seems like from all of the interviews that I've heard and, and read and, and uh, podcasts that I've listened to about that movie, it seemed like McQuarrie was like so in the trenches on that film. I can't imagine that he would just be willing to step away and maybe take like an executive producer credit or something like that on the sequel. And I know he's busy with those two Mission Impossible movies. So and those are supposed to be filming back to back. So who knows when Tom Cruise would even have time to do this? Uh, I don't know. Well, I, Tom I'm, Cruise would have time to do it because when he's not filming or, you know, training for insane stunts. You know, he has time to film another movie like an, an actor. You know, you look at any actor's, you know, resume, they they can film, you know, upwards to, you know, five films, six films a year, depending on the size of the role. I I just don't think McQuarrie is going to be available for this, especially with those back to back Mission Impossible movies. 
Yeah, and like, would Cruz be interested in making a blockbuster without his guy there by his side these days? I, I, I don't know. So I, I feel like there's a lot of questions here, and it seems like this is very early days still. Um, so I, I'm very curious to see if this is something that just, you know, gets talked about as like, oh, yeah, this is in development. They have somebody write a, a draft of the script, and then maybe it never comes together. But um, I, I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess I'll have to wait and see on this one. Uh, speaking of the future, I remember probably five, six, seven years ago, at CinemaCon, at the Warner Brothers presentation, Warner Brothers was talking about how the studio was going to move forward and now that Harry Potter had complete that saga had completed itself. And uh, they were talking about the future of Warner Brothers was all the cinematic universe that was going to revolve around the DC universe. And then, uh, you know, that kind of fell apart. And then I think Warner Brothers was touting that, you know, Harry Potter's back. We're going back to, you know, Fantastic Beasts. That's the future of of this studio. And, uh, and now they are course correcting again. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so I guess the, the new approach at Warner Brothers is now fewer connected cinematic universes. Uh, Kevin Sujahara, who is the, the head of Warner Brothers right now, gave an interview to the Los Angeles Times, and he sort of echoed some things, some statements that he and, and other Warner Brothers execs have made about their approach to specifically to, to DC superhero movies. Uh, he says, the upcoming slate with Shazam, Joker, Wonder Woman 1984, and Birds of Prey feels like we're on the right track. We have the right people in the right jobs working on it. The DC cinematic universe isn't as connected as we thought it was going to be five years ago. Ago, you're seeing much more focus on individual experiences around individual characters. That's not to say at some point we won't come back to that uh, notion of a more connected universe, but it feels like that's the right strategy for us right now. So that, again, like I said, that that's sort of... Um, We've known this for a little while, but to hear the head of Warner Brothers basically say in no uncertain terms, we are officially course correcting. We are trying to put the control back in the hands of directors instead of, you know, forcing everything into these uh, connect the dots sort of boxes um, is a is an important thing. Um you know, in addition to that, they also are looking at a few of their sort of legacy properties to get the you know get those back out into the world as well uh specifically they mentioned uh the matrix and more mad max movies so there's been talk of another matrix movie for uh, several years now but the fact that that was the first thing out of his mouth uh, makes me think that he's been thinking about the matrix a lot so i wonder if that movie is is actually close to getting an official green light you know like i said we've been talking about that for a little while but nothing official has happened yet uh and then also mad max like that's another one that ever since mad max fury road came out that, that was like four years ago when that movie came out and uh, fans have been like uh, rabidly wondering when the next movie would come and then there was this big lawsuit between george miller the director and the studio so um i don't know if the the fallout from that lawsuit has actually uh, come to light yet uh, yeah, we don't could, know the... could we even see a mad max movie without george miller I don't know. I, I mean, uh, Sujahara specifically said, we'd love to work with George Miller on furthering the Mad Max franchise. So he, you know, I, I think there was some talk with the Matrix movie that maybe the Wachowskis would not be involved with that. And I, I find it hard to believe that Sujahara would specifically name check George Miller there if he was interested in just the property alone. It sounds like he really wants Miller's vision on, you know, connecting or continuing that uh, that franchise. So I, I don't know. I, I guess the fact that he's even mentioning that maybe indicates that the results of that lawsuit, maybe they settled and, and maybe everything is, is fine and it's all, you know, water under the bridge and they might be able to move forward with this thing. Um, but 
yeah, that, that's what that's the future of Warner Brothers right now. I, I know I've harped on this in the past, but I, I think this whole Hollywood taking from the situation that cinematic universes are, are not the way to go is not the right lesson to be learned here. I feel like they didn't approach a cinematic universe in a thoughtful way, just like, you know, Universal didn't <laughs> approach the dark universe in a thoughtful way. Uh, Jacob, am I wrong? Yeah, I feel like the the position that Warner Bros. is taking now, which is make good movies first, uh, is a position that Marvel did. I mean, they made Iron Man first. It was a good movie. People liked it. They made Captain America first. It was a good movie. People liked it. And then, even though they had a secret back pocket plan for the Avengers all along, they tested the waters and they didn't lead with the fact that this is all connected. I mean, so Warner Bros. is kind of realizing, oh, if we make good movies, maybe people will be interested in exploring more. Honestly, I, I am less concerned about the DC Universe and more about a George Miller-less Mad Max. That sounds terrible. That sounds awful. Don't make that happen. Please bring back George Miller. But anyway, <laughs> universes are fine and great and good if you can make sure each individual piece works fine. Like, just as a random example, I've been catching up in my comics recently, and the most recent run of Fantastic Four is very good because it stands very much alone. It makes a reference to things that are happening in the larger Marvel Universe, but each issue reads as its own standard adventure that I can enjoy without knowledge of what's going on outside of it. And that was never a problem with most Marvel movies, but it was a problem with the DC movies. So I feel like if you are going to you know, go that direction, you just got to look at making sure each piece is satisfying. And I feel like looking at the success of Aquaman and you know, Wonder Woman, those are very satisfying pieces. Build upon those, see what people like, and then build connections based on those. I, I just don't understand why these studios can't learn from you know, what Marvel has done with Kevin Feige. I feel like you need someone to take on that showrunner role and you really need to have a plan and it not to be cynical in that, like, you know, everything about Dark Universe just felt icky. You know, the the the, the way it was planned and the, the setup of, you know, the, you know, the way it connects and stuff like that. It didn't feel like something a storyteller was trying to, create you know it just felt like something a studio was trying to create to make money which i know is the <laughs> it's the bottom line here but i don't know I, I i love what marvel is doing with their cinematic universe and i wish i wish there was some other studio that was able to emulate that in in some proper way i i, I know disney's even having a little trouble doing that i think on the star wars side i just don't it I, what what is it Ben that like why is Marvel getting it right and no one else can can get it I, I think it's because they started it and then you know Hollywood Peter is a place full of egos right so yeah. you wouldn't necessarily want to have a, a studio executive at a rival company just being like brazenly saying okay we're gonna do this exact thing I mean Hollywood has always been a place where um you know the the newest freshest idea is jumped on and copied immediately but there's there tends to be a little twist on it right it's not necessarily always just a, an exact copy so i can i can fully imagine somebody there uh, being like, okay, we're going to do it this way to stand out, for, you know, from the Marvel way. We don't want to. We want to establish ourselves as a as a different way of doing things. And they're just realizing that that method uh, has not worked for them so far. But it sounds like, you know, as Jacob mentioned, Aquaman performed exceptionally well at the box office, and Sujahara knows that 
that movie and Wonder Woman and what we've seen so far with Shazam, these movies look like they're pretty well standalone type of films. And maybe they could, they're just slowly, you know, they started out in a, in a disaster of a nuclear yeah. cloud. And then as the smoke is clearing, they're slowly just coming to the Marvel method of their own accord. And then they'll eventually get back to bringing things together again. Uh, t- tomorrow on the water cooler, I'll talk more about this, but I watched Iron Man 2 for the first time since uh, it was in theaters uh, over the weekend. Uh, Kitra had never seen it. Um, and... Watching that, like, and even, you know, looking at what DC has, or Warner Brothers has done with DC, it's almost the equivalent of if Marvel had decided that, oh, John Favreau did such a great job with Iron Man, we're going to put him in charge of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And judging by, you know, what happened in Iron Man 2, I think that would have been a disaster. I feel like they need to have some kind of separation I, I, I know this sounds bad, but I think filmmakers need to be hired to come on and execute a vision, a bigger vision of the cinematic universe to, to work. But um, I don't know. OK, it, 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 we're going too long on this. Let's move on to Guillermo del Toro, who is uh, writing and directing a secret bad robot project. Jacob, what do we know? Uh, the movie is called Zanbato, and del Toro has been developing it for the past six years in secret. But now the word is out thanks to Collider, who reported that he is about a young female ninja between the ages of 10 and 15. Uh, and Del Toro confirmed this movie exists on Twitter, uh, writing, This has been development for the last six years or so. Thanks to J.J. Uh, J. J. Abrams uh, for his maximum security system, it had not leaked. We are still developing steadily. Stay tuned here for news on which project shoots next. Pinocchio, by the way, referring to a stop-motion Netflix movie, is already in active prep in Portland. By the way, not a ninja project. So, what we have here is confirmation that there is a action movie called Zambato being made by uh, Oscar winner Guillermo del Toro uh, that is enough like a ninja movie that can be mistaken for one, but not a ninja movie, which makes you think it's martial arts or swords or some kind of action rooted in that style, even if it's not necessarily a ninja you know, so that could be, you know, samurai or a Kill Bill-esque assassin. Or, you know, take from that what you will. The, the, the bad robot machine is still very much at work keeping all of the secret. I'm just happy that even though Del Toro said he's taking a year off after he won his Oscar for Shape of Water, you know, it's been a little over a year, but he's apparently been still actively developing a couple things. He has Pinocchio shooting soon. He has this coming around the corner, hopefully. But he does act, he does say, especially on Twitter, that he's not hasn't announced what shoots next. So even though Zambato is... In development, being written and directed by him, it doesn't. He's not specify that it may be the next thing he actually directs. But Del Toro keeping busy and having the momentum of it being an Oscar winner, and, you know, get things made. It's still pretty exciting. I'm I'm all for whatever he does next. And I love that he's following up his big Oscar fish uh, romance movie with a movie that could be mistaken at all for a ninja movie. Yeah, I, I love yeah. the bounces between genres like that. I'm a little cynical here, Jacob, because if you look at Guillermo's uh, IMDb resume and what he has in his upcoming projects, he has, he always is working on a lot of things. He's juggling a lot of things, and uh, you know, 95 percent of those things never get made. Uh, never mind with him, but you, do you know what I mean? Like it, it's and the fact that he says this has been in development for the last six years just makes me think that this isn't happening. It, 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 Am I wrong? 
Oh, no, you're not wrong at all. I mean, the, the laundry list of unmade Del Toro movies is massive, as long as my arm. Like, like his, his Lost Mountains of Madness movie, his Haunted Mansion script they wrote for Disney. Like, these are all projects that I would have loved to have seen, and I think he would have loved to have made them. But I, I, whatever goes wrong behind the scenes, I don't know. I feel like people want to work with him, and he wants to make these things, but things just don't connect. Uh, we, we, one of these days, I hope he writes a tell-all book to explain it all. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and have hope here that because he has that new momentum, because Shape of Water did make money and because it did give him that prestige, uh, even though they cannot put a Academy Award-winning director, Guillermo del Toro, in the trailer, you know, it's something that you know will hopefully help push these things through now. Yeah. But then again, in his tweet, he does specify, stay tuned for news on what shoots next. So it doesn't necessarily mean this shoots next, which means he could be distracted by anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, part of me believes that... Maybe, you know, Bad Robot's looking for a new home, and maybe this is one of the many projects that's on their on their slate of stuff in development that they're kind of, like, showing off to uh, potential suitors. And maybe that's how this eventually leaked after being in the mystery box for six years. Um, but, you know, I'd be excited to see Guillermo del Toro do a, I guess it's not a ninja movie, but a movie with ninjas. Yeah, I'm in. Um <laughs> Ninja adjacent at very least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's move on to our last story. This is something that broke last week and kind of caused a stir online uh, yesterday at a gathering. Everybody I was with was talking about this. And that is uh, Steven Spielberg is still unhappy with Netflix and uh, is proposing new rules for the Academy. Ben, what do we know? Well, Steven Spielberg is uh, a member of the Academy's Board of Governors, and in April, which is next month, they have a meeting where they do like sort of a post-Oscars State of the Union, State of the Academy kind of situation. And according to IndieWire, Steven Spielberg is uh, is going to propose some new rules that basically are going to try to say that streaming movies like films from Netflix can't qualify for nominations uh, at the Oscars unless they play in theaters for a certain length of time. So um, as you mentioned, Peter, this turned into a, a firestorm of conversation on you know, film Twitter over the weekend, everybody's talking about this. Uh, according to an Amblin spokesperson, Stevens uh, feels strongly about the difference between the streaming and theatrical situation. He'll be happy if the others will join his campaign when that time comes. Uh, he will see what happens. So we don't know exactly what he's going to propose. Um, well, in the past, know, hasn't he said that he thinks that Netflix movies should be considered TV movies and thus only be nominated for Emmys? Yes, he has certainly said that. Um, he said, I don't believe that films that are just given token qualifications and a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for the Academy Award nominations. Um, and this is, has sparked a whole so, conversation. Like, people, Wait a second. Like, wouldn't that disqualify every short film nominated all the uh, – so many of the documentaries, so many of the foreign films only get like you know that Oscar qualifying you know, week or two of release? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure. Um, and that that could be part of, you know, the larger points that he's he's planning on bringing up at this board of governors meeting. He could address that uh, that difference between, you know, feature length stuff and, and shorts or documentaries. Um, so, I, like I said, we don't have the full picture of what he's talking about. But based on his previous comments, we have the, his general attitude toward streaming movies and, and uh, not just Netflix, but but all sorts of um yeah, streaming films. And um, I'm wondering what you guys think about this, because it seems like everybody is, is chiming in with their opinion. Um, Jacob, what, what do you think? Is Steven Spielberg just completely out of touch here? 
I think he is. Uh, I think it's Spielberg probably has not been to a public movie theater in a couple decades. Uh, I'm blessed to be in a city where I can go see movie in theaters where people don't talk, where there's good presentation, great sound, great projection. But I, I realize that's not the case for everybody. And there are people out there who, you know, don't have access to theaters at all. And Netflix is the place for them to see movies. It is a resource that's becoming increasingly important for artists and art consumers alike and ben said you have the piece open can you read that quote from director ava duvernay about what netflix did for her yeah yeah so she said uh one of the things that i value about netflix is that it distributes black work far and wide um 190 countries will see when they will get when they see us which is her new uh uh, project about the Central Park Five for Netflix. She said, I've had just one film distributed wide internationally, not Selma, not A Wrinkle in Time. It was 13th by Netflix. That matters. So there, there are several filmmakers who have popped up online uh, over the weekend, like, you know, echoing these, these comments, you know, saying that it's, you know, Netflix is not just um, trying to subvert the rules of, of conventional Hollywood. They are also providing a platform for people that uh, maybe, you know, to for, to spread yeah, like, their voice in, in a way that they wouldn't be in, in the traditional Hollywood studio system. What bothers me here about Spielberg is not just him with the hoity-toity I love theaters thing, because I also love movie theaters. I, I sympathize. What bothers me here is the idea of you can't come to our club. Netflix, you're not welcome in our club that has all these other people who have been members for years, sorry, you don't follow our rules, you can't join yeah. uh, raspberry in your face. It's just, it's it's elitism. It's elitism, and it's, I think Spielberg is the best director of generation. I will never, I will never have a bad thing to say about his movies, and I, I'm allowed to have two opinions because I'm a human being and I'm not the internet. Uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker who's incredibly wrong and in looking backwards in a big way at a system that yeah Netflix can be really frustrating they did do things that anger me all the yeah. time but I do think they put more good into the world when it comes to the things that they are willing to make the things they're willing to back things that Spielberg himself as a producer would never have backed and it's very frustrating that he wants to keep these filmmakers and this company out of his club yeah and there, there's filmmakers like Joseph Kahn that are sticking up for Spielberg and saying that you know Netflix is this big bad company that you know it, you know if they win it's it's bad for all of us but i don't think that's a reason to change the rules and honestly as a consumer um you know Netflix has always wanted to provide their their content day and date with their subscribers you know you give give the consumers a choice to see it in theaters or see it on their platform uh you know the exhibitors really haven't wanted that so they've kind of agreed to like these small like week or two windows of theatrical um presentation and we don't even really know the numbers there because a lot of that is kind of secretive as well but um i don't know it all this registers to me as fear it's fear from uh people not wanting things to change uh I am a huge fan of the cinematic experience. I love going to the movies, uh, especially when it's a big event film um, or even like a small date movie. But uh, I feel like if I'm a movie theater, if I'm an exhibitor and I fear that the whole thing is going to come crumbling down if we get rid of this exclusive time window then the theatrical experience and what I'm providing to the public isn't worth anything in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Like it, there's no value in it. If that's the, if the only value that they're providing to the, to consumers is 
an exclusive window to see this thing on a big screen. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there needs to be more value than that. And I know I'm getting a little off track here. Uh, Franklin, Franklin Leonard, who started The Blacklist, uh, pointed out that Netflix's first four forays into the Oscar campaigns were with Beasts of No Nation, 13th, Mudbound, and Roma. Um, he says that it's possible that Steven Spielberg doesn't know how difficult it is to get movies made in the legacy system at, as a woman or a person of color. In his extraordinary career, he hasn't exactly produced or executive produced many films directed by them. Now, I think uh, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of this conversation turned into this and kind of um, became about race. I, is that fair? I think it's a huge piece of it. I mean, I, yeah. I think that the people pulling the strings of Hollywood, the Academy, uh, and the people who are making those decisions are predominantly white and male. And they've, and they've tried to change it. Over, over the years, you know, it's been the push to diversify, but a massive component of Hollywood is that it's still dominated by white men. And Netflix is a, is a company that says, we'll take anything. We just need content. So we're, we're going to give all these other artists who are exciting and not white men a chance to make movies. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily that the, that, the, that the Academy's racist. I don't think Steve Spielberg's racist. I don't think maybe studio heads are racist, but it, it's a paradigm shift. That they may be too old-fashioned to roll with, and that is what needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. I want to know how many movies each year Steven Spielberg, outside of world premieres and you know private press screenings, how many movies Steven Spielberg actually goes to a cinema and sees in with the general public? Zero. You think it's yeah. zero because he he, pro- he has one of those systems. I'm I'm assuming if anybody in this world has one of those systems, they have a system that you can pay lots of money to get. Uh, you know. Uh, major releases that are in theaters now into your like home theater system. I'm sure mm-hmm. he has that. And I'm sure he's watching uh, movies either on that or on a screener or whatever. I, maybe he actually has like, you know, the actual DCPs. <laughs> I mean, he's Steven Spielberg. Like, I don't understand why. <sighs> Is, yeah, it, I know what you're saying. You know, it's like if he experienced what, you know, if his version of like the, the, uh, uh, theatrical experience if he knew what it was like to see a movie on opening night at amc when people have their phones out and are talking and whatever you know maybe he wouldn't be quite as uh, up in arms about the whole thing or at least maybe that wouldn't necessarily be a, a central thesis of his argument is like preserving the theatrical experience i saw somebody say the other day like you know it, it, this this entire argument seems to have turned into the uh, you know preserving the the theatrical experience on one side versus Netflix this like uh, scrappy upstart on the other side and and it seems like people are just taking sides and then stepping into corners to support these two things yeah. and somebody said I forget who it was on Twitter like the theatrical experience this idea of it being this holy thing. Uh, you know, if you look at the beginning of of theaters, like when they were first invented, there there was nothing holy about that experience. It was just a, a way for people to make money, as much money as possible, by cramming two hundred people into a dark room and charging them money to to sit there and <laughs> watch it laid on a wall. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, Netflix on the other hand, like yes, they are doing incredible things and and giving people uh, a voice, but like. Is that going to continue forever? Like, I don't think people should put Netflix on a pedestal necessarily as like the ultimate, um, you know, they're still like a a Silicon Valley tech company at the end of the day. And like, yes, a a lot of their movies haven't even been that great. 
well, yeah, that that too. But you know, they they're they're making smart moves and and moves that are uh, that align with people's uh, politics and and seem progressive or are progressive and and uh, you know uh, they should be lauded for that. But I don't know if we can necessarily just assume that that is going to be their end game forever. Um, you know, who knows? Like once you know, five years from now, this entire system could look so different. So I just think you know before people jump into a corner, it, it's worth looking at the the history and the context yeah. of both of those corners and and what they represent and what they might be in a few years before uh you know uh, screaming at other other people on the internet about it yeah it's 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 weird it, like this whole thing to me and I know I'm probably oversimplifying this but it feels like a few years ago when Uber po- popped up and all the taxi companies were basically preventing Uber from going to major airports and you know they're lobbying and stuff like that it it feels like this is the old system not understanding the way things are going not understanding what consumers want and you know it's like that popular film category i mean i feel like this is just indicative of the academy as a whole and I, i i hope there's enough young blood there to see that this is ill-conceived i think is probably the best word yeah and and really quickly just to to sort of follow up on that peter uh, one last thing i'll say is that uh, i learned something in this article that chris wrote on the site in the 1980s as the home video market was starting to really take off spielberg apparently was dead set against the idea of releasing his movies on vhs but eventually he ended up relenting and and uh you know re- released et for example on uh, v- on home video in 1988 so uh, maybe this is just one of those types of situations, like an Uber taxi sort of situation where the the change is coming. He, you know, tries to stand firm against it for a little while and then realizes the error of his ways. So hopefully, you know, that that's what's going to happen here. By the way, I want to say, you know, if it wasn't for Steven Spielberg, I don't think anybody, any one of us would be here recording this podcast. So it's like I don't want to dismiss him as a person, but sure, I, yeah. I, I, I feel like he does we've always seen him as a visionary and I don't see how he could be so wrong on this. And like, Jacob, am I missing anything to this picture? Like, could we be wrong? Is there any devil's advocate here? Like what, what are we missing? What could we possibly be missing? I think we're missing being rich, successful filmmakers in Los Angeles, Peter. I think if if, if we were uh, near the, if we were in our seventies and we, had 40-year careers making those popular movies of all time and released them in theaters, we would see this differently, but we're not. We're ordinary movie-loving people with, with very different perspectives, and I think it's impossible to... I think it's impossible to... for him to see how ordinary folks feel about this in the same way it's, it's impossible for us to really understand how he must feel as somebody who sees this entire industry from a perspective that we can't even begin to understand because we're not Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, if anybody out there is listening, is screaming at their, you know, iPhone or whatever your device you're listening to this podcast on, please write us at Peter at slash film.com. I would love to hear the other side of this argument. I, we, I know <laughs> on this topic, everybody at Slash Home is kind of on the same page, so there's really not an argument here. And uh, I would really like to hear another take that could, you know, I, I'd love to hear someone that has some something that could convince me to consider the other side more. But I, I just feel like I can't. 
I, I, there's not one angle to this that I feel like, I mean, I, I would, you know, 20 years from now, I would be so sad if movie theaters don't exist. But if that is the choice that is made because of this and because consumers don't feel like the movie theater is worth going to, then then it was all a sham in the first place, in my mind. I don't know. Uh, I, I believe that people are still going to want to go to movie theaters. I, I, I feel like awarding the uh, you know Netflix Movies Academy Awards is not going to hurt anything in the long term. But am I wrong there? Like, will that prevent more? I mean, I, will it prevent it? Will it make a bigger decline in the movie going audiences? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I, I think, I think that um, years, years ago, Spielberg predicted another moment of him speaking um, about the future, that theaters would become more of a niche thing. Ticket prices would go up. Movie theaters would be more about showing the big mainstream releases, uh, maybe for and small stuff would go elsewhere. And that has kind of come true. I mean, a lot of the smaller, like mid-tier movies that used to be all in theaters are all being you know, made for streaming services now. A lot of Netflix's movies are the kind of films that would have been made by a Rob Reiner type in 1994, you know? And they're not being made for studios anymore. Studios want to make the $150 million movies that return a billion, and they have no interest in mid-tier stuff. So I think Spielberg kind of called it. I think that theaters will stick around, but to become more of a boutique thing, where you, you go see the new Marvel movie there, you go see the new big blockbuster there, but places like Netflix are going to be there for the movies that aren't being made and aren't being released in theaters. I don't know. I, I just don't see that being a bad thing. Like, I, exactly. I, I don't feel like I don't feel like 90 percent of the movie going public were going to the movies to see the small movies anyways, which I know is sad, but it's true. You know, Netflix, Netflix puts them on a platform where people can find them because these are the kind of movies people would find in VHS 20 years ago. And now they can find them on Netflix. And I think that's fine. Okay, we've reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com that you can read all the the stories we mentioned on today's show in the show notes. Uh, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or tell us why we're wrong about Spielberg and Netflix at peter at slashfilm.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page, write us a five-star review, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. I'm worried that like we're missing a piece of this puzzle and we're going to look dumb in years to come. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I have that same sense, Peter, but I feel like if, if I feel like all three of us are very intelligent people who spend a lot of time thinking about the movie business. And if it's not immediately obvious to us, I don't think we're going to feel that stupid when, you know, if the other shoe ever drops. And there's also discussions that Netflix and Amazon are going to, have buy movie theaters and stuff right like we've talked about them yeah there has been some talk about that yeah so i mean i feel like that's a step in like i don't understand i don't know i feel like netflix was 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 like poking around at i can't remember which whatever chain that um mark cuban owns was the one that yeah landmark yeah landmark yeah Mm -hmm. i i just i just don't i don't see the theatrical experience going away and i don't see how preventing Netflix from winning Academy Award or being eligible for Academy Awards helps anything other than maybe I don't know who does like how how does that 
My brain's broken. 